Hi, good afternoon. This is Greg Lois, managing partner of Lois LLC. Sitting to my right, your left, Tim Kane, one of our senior associates in our workers' comp defense practice. Uh, if you're here today, it's to learn about which defense applies. Today, we're going to be talking about the common defenses. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, the defense of intoxication, intentional injury, consequential loss. Lots of fun uh, discussions today. Uh, if you're here today, it's because you're part of, I hope, our overall uh, webinar series. It goes through many topics in workers' comp defense. If you've ever missed some of our webinars, uh, you can go on our website, and in the archive section, there's a video copy of everyone archived with closed captioning. So, you know, those are always fun to, to watch with the family at dinner yeah. time or, you know, Can't a, beat that. Yeah, a weekend in the summer. I mean, what else would you want to be doing with your time? Um, just a small part of the overall uh, education we do for our clients and our community here. Uh, please feel free to check out our website, sign up for our newsletter, or request one of our books. All right, this is totally live. This is our second session today. The first session we had a couple um, hiccups. I would say the word hiccup is a nice word, sure. Um, please feel free to type in your questions. Uh, if you type them in, we will uh, answer them all at the end, or of course you can always email us and we'll get back to you as soon as we can. All right, today we're going to talk about common denial reasons. We're going to talk about legal denials, meaning those that have a jurisdictional or legal basis, as well as the interplay of facts and case-specific information in deciding when we're going to deny a case. Um, last month we discussed already the topic of non-employee, and we also, in that lack of employment sort of defense, we talked about illegal employment independent contractors, minors, uh, all the sorts of issues that come up surrounding the issue of who are our employees and uh, that sort of basic jurisdictional requirement that the workers' compensation claim can only be brought by an employee. Today we're going to talk about a lot of common defenses, including that of no accident, consequential injury, idiopathic event, et cetera. We're going to get into those today. Um, next month we're going to talk about the defense of going and coming, and we're going to probably touch on it today. We did in the earlier session just a little bit. When does the employment begin? Are commutes covered? That type of thing. That We're going to try to hold that off to next month because we think that's its own topic. That's how broad and big that defense is, how common it is. And then finally, we'll talk about attachment as a defense to paying benefits in our July webinar. Okay, uh, the reason we're here today is some kind of accident occurs at work. If our clients do nothing, if we do nothing, um, that accident's going to be presumed compensable and they're going to have a valid workers' compensation case. So, uh, as I got to pick all the topics, I'm going to take the first one, which is the easiest, uh, that defense of there was no accident. Um, this happens a lot uh, where there's either an unwitnessed loss or we think there's a very questionable loss, particularly those losses that occur after someone has said, hey, I need a day off or I want to go on vacation and we deny that vacation request and all of a sudden they have a workers' comp episode or accident that day. It's unwitnessed and we always have a defense that, hey, this didn't occur and those are highly fact-sensitive defenses. Uh, so that would depend on the type of investigation we get from the location, any surveillance, information like that. Sure, and also the claimant's credibility at trial. I mean, if you have other information, things that might call into question the credibility of the, 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 the claim that's being made, uh, you know, the person has to show up and, and testify to these sorts of things, and there might be some things you can do at trial to chip away at that presumption that they're allowing companies. Sure, and, and today we're going to talk about legal defenses and that interplay with that fact and investigation. What do we have? What information do we get from the location or the, or the client? 
But also remember there's a lot of uh, accidents or alleged injuries or conditions which may not be actually work-related at all. And, you know, I'm thinking primarily about things like respiratory claims, asthma claims, allergic reactions, um, any sort of like myocardial infarctions or heart attack claims, angina claims. Yeah, maybe these things temporarily occurred during the workday, but did we actually cause them, right? And the burden is on the claimant to show that there was something peculiar to the employment that exposed them to some type of respiratory irritant or condition that would then lend itself to that condition. Exactly, and one advantage that we have is the IME should give a detailed explanation of how these uh, irritants or, or whatever the case may be could cause that condition or not cause it. Um, a lot of times the claimant's report will be vague. Uh, it'll just say, yeah, I think this happened because of the claimant's work environment. Mm -hmm. um, so we can also uh, take our report and, and go ahead and cross-examine the claimant's doctor and try to uh, call into doubt the causal relationship of something like that. Right, and really we have these slides up here just to remind people, you don't have to accept a case just because they're bringing the case. In other words, particularly respiratory cases, allergic reaction cases, uh, we've had cases where food preparers, so they were exposed to something they were allergic to, etc. Definitely these are the types of cases that would benefit from investigation. All right, so no accident defense, easiest defense. With that, I'm going to turn it over to you uh, to talk about some interesting defenses. Right, so uh, an idiopathic condition, it's similar to what you were just mentioning. I mean, if someone has a seizure at work or something, or if they're just walking down the hall and their, their knee goes out or they twist their ankle and there's, uh, you know, nothing in the environment that would have caused them to, to trip uh, or slip or, or, or have whatever, you know, condition it might be, um, you know, we're going to take the position normally that that is not cause-related to the uh, to the employment. Um, once again, it, it often comes down to medical testimony. Uh, if your IME concedes that it's related, you're going to be in trouble. But if the IME indicates that the, you know it's doubtful that it's uh, related to work, uh, then you can go ahead and start cross-examining their doctor, cross-examining the claimant, and try and call, call into question whether it was related to work or if it's just something that happened at work. Uh, it's like so many things, it can be a, a fact-sensitive inquiry, uh, you know, the judge is going to make a determination about credibility, mm -hmm. um, but um, in situations where there is an alternative explanation, um, or if the explanation that they're giving is incredible, you know, there's right. a chance to win those. Right, and putting on your claimant's attorney's hat for a little bit, because you did have a lot of experience representing claimants before yes. the board, um, how many times was an, a, an injury which the defense attempted to characterize as idiopathic, you know, particularly that just walking down the hallway and my knee gave way and now I have a meniscal tear and I'm claiming it's work-related. Raising that defensive idiopathic, hey, this has nothing to do with the employment, did you ever see that as successful from the defense? And in my experience, I'll tell you, the defense side is rare. It's really right. hard to convince a judge where something happened during the workday that it didn't arise out of the employment. Right. It's hard. As a defense attorney, to convince the judge that it's 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 uh, for better or for worse, it's easier as a claims attorney sure. to yeah. uh, convince the judge that it did happen at work. I think a lot of times they're trying to uh, err on the side of caution in terms of uh, finding more cases than fewer, you know, versus the actual number of, of claims that are, are work related. Mm -hmm. uh, they don't want to leave someone out in the cold, as it were. But if you have uh, the evidence behind you, there's a chance of winning on that in the defense side. So you know, you always. Uh, to consider denying those types of claims and not just admitting or, or conceding anything. Right, at least raising them maybe just for the point of setting the case up for a potential 32 if you can. Right, um, sometimes you have multiple defenses, right? So, you know, if you're depending on other grounds, of course you have to throw that in there. 
All right, so idiopathics fall under that personal risk defense, meaning purely personal to the employee, nothing work-related. Let's talk about a little bit more entertaining version of the uh, personal risk, and uh, let's watch this quick little video. All right, so clearly Jerry just got shot, or Jerry shot uh, the co-employee. Um, and I hope the video and the audio is synced up for people watching, but essentially we've got a angry husband or boyfriend coming into the employment and shooting a co-worker saying, you've been talking to my wife, my, my uh, partner here. Right, so I think this presents an interesting uh, question of, uh, you know, the intersection of whether it's related to work or not. Uh, it looks like there's a chance that they were talking on the phone about work, and certainly, as we were discussing earlier, I mean, it looks like it's the event is happening at the workplace. So the claims attorney is going to have a lot to work with in mm -hmm. a case like this. Um, but on the other hand, if you if you have a situation where um, it's strictly personal, or if it's just some random person, uh, not random person. I'm sorry. If it was a random person coming off the street to a place of business, it probably would be considered compensable. But yeah. if it's a strictly Agreed. personal sort of thing. Uh, you might be able to, or if it's something where the employee actually initiates the altercation, you might be able to uh, uh, defend the claim on the, on the um, grounds that it wasn't uh, work-related and that it was a, you know, something that this person was involved in uh, on a personal basis. Yeah, so it might come down to like looking at the text messages. Was this, were they really having phone calls about work? Was this really about setting schedules for the following week or, <laughs> or the right, boyfriend right, and girlfriend? Right. I don't know. You can get that information, yes, definitely. Yep. All right. Um, so we talked about the personal risk. Let's talk, I'll take another easy slide, intoxication. Uh, very difficult defense to have sustained in New York workers' compensation. Um, even where an employee is intoxicated and the intoxication contributes to the overall accident and the ultimate injuries, it can still be found compensable if the intoxication is not the sole cause for the loss. And so what we actually see is where we have extremely drunk employees who drive the company van off the side of a bridge, um, they say, well, I was drunk. Yeah, my alcohol, my blood alcohol level was a 0.4, uh, which is four times the legal limit. But I had worked three sh uh, shifts that week. I was exhausted. I was tired. It was the combination of being tired plus the intoxication which caused the loss. Now the law judge will say, well, that intoxication was not the sole cause of the loss. Therefore, your intoxication defense doesn't work. So we have one on the books, but... Right. Um, but there are situations, maybe someone, uh, if you have a whole handful of witnesses who says that the, the, the claimant drank a six-pack of beer quickly at lunch and then fell on their face, you know, you might have a winner there, so... Yeah, fact-dependent uh, definitely would be the kind of defense we would raise if we had information that would lend itself to the defense. Uh, and this is why when there is a loss, uh, we'll try to secure that police report, we'll try to secure any urine toxicologies that are made at the time, and certainly if they're admitted to the hospital, maybe there's a blood alcohol test that's been made at the hospital. So certainly a, a defense that we would raise, typically for positional purposes or tactical purposes, to move the case towards the Section 32, but unlikely a defense to be ultimately successful on its own merits. All right.
consequential injuries. These are the bane of most of our clients' existence and our bane because as soon as you feel like you get the case going on the right path towards closure, they raise a new body part. Right. So um, as most of us have uh, uh, you know, seen in, in, in quite a few cases, a, a huge percentage of cases, uh, consequential injuries are injuries that are not related to the initial accident, but they are apparently caused by you know the consequence of, of that initial accident. So the, the sites always seem to mirror one to the other. So if someone has a shoulder injury, a right shoulder injury, they'll end up claiming consequential left, left shoulder. shoulder. If they have a right knee injury, they'll end up claiming left knee. For some reason, the sites always tend to mirror each other. Mm -hmm. But the, the point is, if someone is, uh, you know, if, they're if they hurt the right shoulder, they'll claim that their left shoulder has been undergoing so much use that it's an injury. Um, so we always uh, recommend denying these. It, all, you know, it depends on what the IME says. If the IME concedes, you, you might be uh, uh, out of luck. Mm -hmm. But um, I don't think the medical community in general accepts consequential injuries right. as like a real thing. Uh, most claimants' doctors uh, accept them wholeheartedly, uh, conceptually. Um, but I, I think it's fair to say a lot of IMEs are not going to immediately concede this type of injury. So if you have a good report, uh, you know, we can definitely defend consequential claims. And, and I think a lot of judges will see through that too as long as you have the, uh, the proper sort of cross-examination on the record if the, if the claimant's attorney doesn't defend it uh, well. You know, sometimes they're unavoidable. Sometimes the person may have a degenerative condition, right? If they, if they hurt um, their knee and then they, they claim a, a consequential hip, you know, that hip might have been on the way out anyways. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, you know, it might become part of the case and that's unfortunate. Um, but once again, if you have a, a good medical report to work with and you, and you, and you cross-examine their doctor uh, thoroughly, there's a good chance of, of getting rid of these claims. Okay. Uh, just as a reminder, we're about halfway through or so. Uh, please type in your questions if you have any. We're happy to answer them. This is totally live. Um, we have standing by Lauren, who will read the questions to us, and she's not excited about uh, being on audio at all, so please type in as many questions as you can. Yeah. All right, uh, I'm going to take another easy one. Notice, uh, there is a notice defense in New York, although it seems like uh, the judges are not uh, very willing to sustain a notice defense, and there's a couple reasons for that. Um, but uh, the claimant on the books has to give us written notice of a loss. That's rare. Uh, more typically, we're found to have constructive notice of a loss because they reported it to a supervisor, to a manager, or because we know that they were taken from the work site in an ambulance or taken for urgent care uh, into some kind of facility. So we're deemed to have constructive notice. Certainly, uh, that we're not expecting employees to be writing out longhand descriptions of their accident if they're unconscious and on an ambulance uh, going to the hospital. We're deemed to have constructive notice. Uh, we raise notice as a defense all the time. We say, look, they gave um, notice to the wrong person, right? A typical thing is the worker gives notice to a colleague, not to a supervisor, not to a manager, and we hear the same argument from our adversaries all the time. Not only do you have to give notice within a specific amount of time, but we have to show prejudice to the employer. Right. If, if the claimant fails to report the accident within 30 days, the exception to that rule is that if there was no prejudice to the employer, uh, then they can kind of get around that and the mm -hmm. claim can still be found compensable. And the way prejudice is shown is if the people, the supervisor or the human resources person, the people who would have been in position to investigate the, the facts of the accident are no longer there, um, or if there's information, I mentioned in the earlier webinar, and I've actually had a case like this where if there's uh, video evidence um, of the, the time and place that 
could have helped everyone determine if this is a, a compensable claim. Yeah. And if the if the employer routinely destroys this type of evidence, you know, every 30 days or on an ongoing basis, um, and the person brings the claim after that, that could represent prejudice. So as a claimant's attorney, uh, you're definitely trying to show that there was no prejudice to the employer if there's late notice. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times on the C3, you know, it won't even indicate whether notice was given, so it's the kind of thing where you, you do your investigation and try and figure out whether you got notice, um, and then if, if it doesn't seem like it happened, right, you cross-examine the claimant, you know, as hard as you can on that issue at trial. All right, let's talk about the statute of limitations, also a viable defense. It's a viable defense, right? So this normally applies to, I mean, it applies to claims in general, but a lot of times where you see this is when someone tries to bring an additional site into an established claim. Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, you have to raise sites within two years from the date of accident. Um, and uh, so if a, if a claim is established for, um, you know, a knee, and somehow two years later the person oh, tells their attorney, oh, I hurt my ankle as well, um, you know, we can defend that from the, on the basis that that site wasn't raised within two years. If it wasn't on the C3, if it wasn't raised at a hearing, if it's, um, you know, it's not something that was testified to by the doctor, anything like that, uh, you can try to keep it out. But the, the thing you have to be careful of um, is, you know, some, if attorney is sharp enough, they, they might try to characterize an injury as a consequential right. injury and kind of circumvent the two-year requirement. Yeah. Right. Because those consequentials would not have that two-year statute of limitations. I've also um, been experienced cases where the, uh, the carrier or the employer uh, was providing treatment for a right knee, and then at some point, treating physicians decided, I'm going to start treating the left knee. We started making payments where we did pay for the treatment for some period of time before it kind of crossed somebody's radar screen. And they said, wait a second, we shouldn't have been paying for this. And then my adversary goes, well, you already made an advance payment of compensation towards that other body part, which thereby tolls the statute of limitations if you started treating it. And, you know, that's an argument we make, well, okay, well, let's go to the causal relationship of that actual uh, circumstance. And, again, we're back to fighting doctor versus doctor. Yep. Yeah. All right. Um, Next, let's talk about intentional injuries, pretty rare. Um, uh, I'll talk a little bit about, wait, whose, whose slide is this? Mine or yours? <laughs> you tell me. <laughs> You're the boss. <laughs> well, you did statute of limitations, so I guess yeah. I'm stuck with okay. intentional injuries. All right. All right, so intentional injuries really cover um, self-harm. This is where someone is like literally saying, I'm angry about something happening at the job. Watch this. And they start banging their head into a piece of plywood, or they throw themselves into a machine, or do something literally crazy. Um, Generally speaking, very hard for us to prove that they are acting with intention. Um, you know, you've mentioned earlier that sometimes you've got a great video that shows the person carefully staging the loss and then throwing themselves down on the ground and it saying, happens. "Yeah, it, yep, it, happens. it happens." So you might have a fraud overlay with your intentional injury. Um, certainly, if we think there's an intentional injury, we should absolutely be raising fraud. But um, really, intentional injuries was meant to uh, resolve uh, the issue where someone literally decides, "I'm going to kill myself today," and they leave a note. They put, leave the note in their car. They go to the top of the skyscraper they're working on and they throw themselves off of it clear case of that they've intentionally self-harmed. Um, sometimes I have clients who say things like, look, this person intended to be self-harmed. They weren't wearing their steel-tipped shoes or they weren't wearing their safety equipment and, you know, refusing to, to wear their uh, PFEs shows that they're trying to get hurt. I say, well, good luck. That's not an argument that's going to hold any water before the board. They can make the argument. It's just not going to go anywhere. True. Yes, and safety goggles, a lot of things like that, hearing protection, uh, if the person didn't wear what they were supposed to be wearing, it's still very difficult to defend on, on the self-harm 
basis. Yeah, it also comes into play in the intentional or horseplay situation where an employee is either starting a fight with another employee and will say, look, he instigated this fight with someone, uh, therefore he's, he intended whatever harm befell him ultimately. Uh, again, this is a defense that's raised, rarely sustained. Very fact-sensitive. Uh, let's talk about some more fact-sensitive defenses, uh, recreational. Right, so often enough an employer will um, host recreational type activities uh, outside of work hours, a company softball game or company picnic, something like that. If attendance is uh, required or if the employer gets some uh, distinct benefit from the employee being present at the event and if the employee gets hurt, then they'll likely have a compensable claim. Uh, however, if it's, uh, if it's something that's done on a voluntary basis, if the person is, uh, you know, allowed to go or participate, but there's, there's no requirement, if the, the employer is not getting any benefit out of it, um, then we would, uh, you know, take the position that that's not work-related and it could have happened in any other sort of recreational context. Yep. And most of the time, we're fighting things like charity 5K runs, we're fighting things like picnics, we're fighting things like uh, everybody's on the same softball team and got injured. And just because the employer supplies the uniforms or maybe even pays for the softball dues for the entire uh, employee base, it doesn't matter. We're arguing, look, we're not required to do this. Sure. You can expect yeah. arguments from the other side that the employer got some benefit from that. So it's, once again, a fact, sort of sensitive inquiry. You can expect a lot of uh, sort of emotional pitches to the judge mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. in this one. Yep. Uh, certainly saying something like, hey, you guys don't have to participate in this charity run, but if you don't, I'll remember that at review time is the type of thing that would transform that purely voluntary activity to something uh, much more mandatory. Um, all right, and uh, last topic that we're going to touch on today is lunch and break time injuries. Uh, we have a lot of clients that are you know, operating retail stores or stores in a mall or in a shopping center, and we have employees who are punching out. Uh, leaving our premises, walking throughout the mall, going to the food court and falling down an escalator, slipping on water in the mall, uh, choking in the food court, things like this. And the first questions we ask are, are they unpaid breaks? Are the breaks being held on-premises, off-premises? Uh, are they required to take their breaks where they're taking their breaks? Uh, so typically if we're saying you can take your break anywhere, you're punching out, you're not on our premises, and you just happen to be within the same mall that we operate our retail store, our argument would be this is absolutely not covered, it's not a compensable episode, you're just exposed to the normal risk that anybody at that mall or in this location would be at. But I think if you're in the same building, there's a much greater chance the judge is going to go ahead and find that compensable versus mm -hmm. if it's an outside location. You have a much better, I think, shot uh, at defending the claim if it's uh, an outside location unless the outside location can be framed as uh, something that benefited the employer. Uh, for example, if the person was making a delivery um, at a point that was where the, 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 the lunch location was uh, in between those mm -hmm. two points, mm -hmm. um, there's an argument that the, the, the claimant was doing something that was essentially an incident of employment. They knew that this person was going to have to eat lunch at some point, and they were doing a, a job-related task at the time. Um, so what we really uh, are looking for are, are any points that would uh, sort of relate this back to the work, or is this just strictly someone's lunch break, they're clocked out, they're off the premises, that kind of thing. Right. How far that detour was from their actual employment destination and clearly, it, it benefits the employer if it's they're not really making much of a detour or they're having the lunch where they're making that delivery, et cetera. Yeah, something like that. Okay. Um, 
we are done with our prepared slides. Let's open it up to questions. I'm hoping that we have some questions this afternoon. We're going to ask Lauren to read them to us. You may not be able to hear her, so then we'll repeat them back to you. Um, and I'd say just say the person's first name and what the name, what the question is, so they know that we're addressing their question. Do we have any questions? Steve, thanks, Steve. Steve wants to know what if the employer has an exercise area room, and although not required, employees can use on their own. Sure. Okay. So Steve's question is, all right. Uh, our employer within our, within our own premises has an exercise room. Employers, employees are not required to use it, but it's here for their use should they want to use it. Because this is a common one. I've got employers that have exercise rooms, that have shower facilities, that have uh, a lot of amenities that they're offering their employees. And generally speaking, even though the people are not clocked in, injuries within our own, on our own premises and particularly in facilities that are offered for the, own, for the benefit of the employees, even if they're not clocked in, are generally found to be compensable, generally. Even though the activity that takes place there is voluntary, because it's on premises, uh, that has generally been how the board finds. So in those situations, you would look for other mitigating factors, mm -hmm. you know, like the um, sort of self-harm or, or, or the, the horseplay. Mm -hmm. You know, we know mm -hmm. that can be horseplay in locker rooms. Sure. You know? yep. <laughs> so do the investigation. You never know um, if it's worth defending. You know, you could still potentially win on a claim like that, aside from the, uh, you know, the fact that it was part of the premises. All right. Lauren, any other questions? We have another one. Yes. All right. Good. Corinne said, so if an employee chokes in an employer's cafeteria during an unpaid break, is this compensable? Okay. So Corinne's question is, a choking episode on an unpaid break on premises in our lunchroom. Is that fair? Good question. All right. So this is a good mixed scenario, right? It's an unpaid break, but it's still on premises. Again, I think the board is likely to find that that's compensable, particularly because it might be able to show to the, uh, the, the claimant can make the argument, hey, this benefits the employer. We don't even leave the building. We're here. We could get called back to our desk or called back to the floor or have to do a rush job or something like that. I think that they're likely going to prevail on that argument. Right, even if it's an unpaid break. Certainly if it was a, a paid break or if, if there was a requirement that they use that lunchroom, that even mm -hmm. that makes it even more of a closed sort of case. Yep, um, yep. I think we're agreeing on that one. And do we have any more questions? Lauren's laughing. Yeah. Steve has a follow-up. Steve's follow-up. Would a waiver help out on this type of issue? Sure. Okay. So you can you can try for that. Um, it depends on the employment. You might have union rules, et cetera, that would interfere with that. But generally speaking, uh, you can get employees to sign waivers. They don't hold up in court, right? So you can even though you can waive your liability in other forums, and certainly you can sign general leases and say, hey, if you're going to use our weightlifting facility, you agree you will not sue us, Lois LLC. You will not sue anybody. Okay, that might hold up in other courts, but certainly there is no ability to waive future workers' compensation rights outside of a Section 32 agreement and outside of a judge's approval. So uh, any time you get them to sign something that says, I will, uh, if I use the employer uh, facility, I use your gym, I use your showers, comma, I agree this is not work-related and I'm not going to bring a workers' compensation claim, I don't think it's worth the paper it's written on. Probably not. And their attorney, the first thing they're going to do when the issue comes up at trial is going to ask them things like, did you have an attorney when you signed this agreement? Right. right? You can't yeah. grill them on the fine print and expect the judge to give you a, uh, a good outcome necessarily. Okay. Looking back at Lawrence, she's shaking her head. I feel like there's more questions over there. Is an injury resulting from an idiopathic injury, i.e. a concussion after a seizure, 
is an injury occurring after an idiopathic condition, i.e. a concussion after a seizure compensable? Okay, good question, and this is a kind of a, a normal one. We see this all the time, right? We have the diabetic who maybe didn't take their metformin this morning. They pass out at work. They smack their head. Now they have a post-concussion injury. We have an epileptic who's maybe um, behind on their meds, have an epi epileptic seizure at work, fall down, smack their head, post-concussion. Um, a lot of people, person with low blood pressure doesn't take their medication. Uh, they go hypocardic, hypo, uh, and they fall down, whack their head. Yeah, the original episode, the, the epileptic seizure, not compensable. The diabetic uh, fainting, not compensable. But striking their head in our facility would be compensable, and the sequelae of that, I think, would be compensable. So you're probably stuck with treating them for the concussion uh, and any neuropsychiatric sequelae of the concussion, but not responsible for treating the underlying condition, that idiopathic, purely personal condition, which I think led to the fall. Agree? Uh, I agree, you know, almost you know, just on the premises basis, even though logically it doesn't seem like it should be the employer's responsibility yeah. if you follow the chain of causation, but I think you're probably right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we've had circumstances, too, where people have passed out due to heat stroke or other kinds of conditions, and as long as they don't strike their head on anything, yeah, I mean, the heat stroke, you're probably treating them for the heat stroke if you expose them to heat, but, you know, uh, diabetic shock or something like that, we're not treating that underlying condition. That's not our responsibility but the result of striking something in our employment would be compensable. Okay, and now Lauren's shaking her head. That's it. We've got no further questions? No. Okay, good. These were good questions. All right, uh, next month our topic is going to be, you got to click so I can go forward again. Our um, topics are going to be uh, the going coming defense. We're going to go uh, at length into commuting injuries, uh, ride-sharing in injuries, uh, employee travel injuries, uh, frolic and detour as a defense. We're going to go through that entire defense. Please join us next month. Um, thanks, everybody, for coming. See you next time.